This is Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. Just a very quick word of note. Uh, The last time, the week before Easter, when we met in the beginning of Mark chapter 11, Jesus was um, entering into Jerusalem. This is a climactic moment in the narrative of the book of Mark where he has been doing miracles and he's been doing teachings and he's been interacting with folks in the north and then he's set his sights on Jerusalem and towards the end of his life where he would give himself up for us as a sacrifice. And in Mark uh, chapter 11, verse 11, after Jesus has ridden the donkey into Jerusalem, it says that he gets off the donkey and because it was late, he looks around and sees everything and then he goes home. And this is the conclusion of that uh, story. Mark 11, verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they were going along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. The word of God for the people of God. It's important, and I hope that we've kind of set the context for this over the last three years. If you guys are new with us, this is something that we take pretty seriously, is setting the proper uh, literary and historical context as we dip into Scripture. This is why we preach through entire books of the Bible, so that we can be assured that uh, we have our best chance of seeing how these passages are meant to tie together and how they're meant to fit within the historical context of the author and the audience and so on and so forth. This passage has a couple of things that we need to take note of. In particular, looking at the literary context, we can see that this is a story about a fig tree and it's also a story about the temple, specifically Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, in Matthew, and again, I don't say this to throw a wrench into your system. I say this because I think it's neat and it's important and we should not be scared of the Bibles that we have. In Matthew, the order is inverted where Jesus goes and he cleanses the temple and then later he leaves and that whole fig tree story is kind of its own separate entity. He leaves, he curses the tree, and then immediately it withers up and dies right on site in Matthew chapter, I believe it's 21. 
Now, what Mark does, this is something that Mark has often done throughout his gospel, is he is strategically placing these stories together to try to give us a guide to how we're supposed to interpret Jesus cleansing the temple. When he goes in and starts throwing over the tables and driving people out, what Mark wants us to see is you have to understand first the story about the fig tree. So he takes that first bit of the story where Jesus sees the tree, it's got leaves on it, but it's not the time for figs, and Jesus curses the tree because it in fact does not have figs, which is very strange. (laughs) And then Jesus enters into the temple cleanses it, and then on the way out the next day, Peter sees the tree and says, hey, Jesus, it's dried up, and it's all withered up. What Mark is doing is saying, in order to understand Jesus in the temple, we need to understand this image of the tree and what Jesus is saying and doing and and why the tree is being cursed, okay? Now, I want to also, uh, before we get into that, I want to look at the historical context of this Uh, passage as well, specifically when we think about Jesus cleansing the temple. I've got a friend of mine who has told me this story where uh, it's as if people were reading this gospel for the first time. Now, for a lot of us, we're we're churched. We've been uh, maybe raised in the church, or we're at least familiar with the stories of the Bible, so we know kind of the general lay of the land. We know what happens to Jesus as he goes along. But imagine, if you will, somebody in the first century reading this story for the very first time. One scholar says that as this is happening, the reader would say, this Jesus guy is really awesome. When do they kill him? Because the stuff that he is doing is so radical and countercultural and counterintuitive and dangerous that the people are expecting, in a sense, to see him die. And in particular, it's this story in the temple cleansing when Jesus has finally entered into Jerusalem and he goes in to overthrow uh, the tables. What we see in this passage, according to R.T. Francis, he would say, it is likely that among the many factors leading to Jesus' death, the one which most united all elements of the Jewish people against him was that he was perceived as an opponent of the temple. Or N.T. Wright saying, almost all scholars now writing in the field agree on two basic points with regard to this story. One, Jesus performed a dramatic action in the temple, and this action was one of the main reasons for his execution. The Jews at the time could not stand what was happening. And we see that the, the, the chief priests and the, um, the rulers of the, the law and of the time wanted to, to take themselves off to the side to plot how they could kill him because what Jesus was doing was completely not cool. The temple was God's dwelling place. From the very beginning in the Old Testament, we see God showing up in the tabernacle. And as the Israelites are marching through the wilderness, they're supposed to put up the tabernacle and then deconstruct it and then take it down wherever they are and then put it back up because that's where God lives in a sense. And here in the temple in this time, the same idea was, was pervasive. God lives in the temple. It's not as though he's confined to this space, but people would go expecting to meet with God. So this was the, the most important building in all of Israel, basically. And people would come from miles around at these festival times to meet with God in his sacred space. The temple was also a place of sacrifice where people would go and offer whatever it is that they had to, to offer to have forgiveness of sins, but also to be ritually purified as well. It wasn't just the sin offerings that took place, but it was also um, this cultural offering where people could be deemed clean and pure and within right standing with God again. And this all took place at the temple. This is a very important building. And the temple is also a building that has political significance. This was a time when Israel had no kings. 
And if God dwells in a certain building, the people who kind of oversee that building, they were the important people because that's where God lived and that's where sacrifice happened and that was the most important place. And they kind of began to elevate themselves above everyone else. There was this nationalistic uh, ideology that was pervasive throughout the temple. This is our place No one else can be here. No one else can touch this. This will be the source of all, in a sense, life and hope. The Romans who oppress us will be off because of what happens in and through the temple. This was a really important building. And when Jesus shows up and starts chucking things around, that's not deemed to be very acceptable. So it says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered into the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. It's interesting to note, he's not just ticked at the people that are selling stuff. He's not just ticked at the money changers. This is not a passage about the corruption in the temple with regard to their practices, for example. It goes beyond that. He starts throwing out the people who are buying and selling there. He overturns the tables of the money changers. Uh, You see people, when they came to the temple, they had a temple tax that they had to pay, and whatever money they had, they would have to exchange it to get this one specific coin. It was a Tyrian coin, I believe, and they would have to use this for their half-shekel temple tax, which was due once a year. He also overturned the benches of those selling doves. This is the cheapest sacrifice that one could buy. This was like a poor person's sacrifice. If this is the best you can do, you can take this dove, and Jesus is super ticked at what's happening here. He's overthrowing the tables of the money changers and the people who are selling doves, and he's not allowing anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. The temple was massive, 172,000 square feet. Wrap your brain around that. I have no point of reference for how big that is, but it's large and in charge, as they say. And for some folks, they'd have to go through the temple or they wanted to go through the temple to cut off some of their journey. And Jesus is trying to prohibit them from doing that, not to be able to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, that's interesting that he's throwing over tables and kind of throwing people out and guarding people from, from getting by him with their, with their merchandise. See how quick I am? That's what, you, that's what you're gonna get in the 5K or something like that. Um, it says that he's teaching them Throwing over tables. I'm going to teach you some Old Testament here real quick, guys. It's interesting. He quotes two texts, one from Isaiah 56 and one from Jeremiah 7. We'll come back to these in a bit. I also forgot to tell you, um, you know how most weeks I say, this one's going to be short? I told Doug earlier, I was like, man, it seems like this one might be nine hours long. And he said, well, if it's nine hours long, I'm going to leave. So... Um, we'll just keep our eyes on Doug. He's up in the, in the balcony there. So when he goes, you just take your cues and get some, come up and get some bread and go. Um, he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but Isaiah 56 is all about inclusion. It's all about, this is not just for you, Israel. Your job is to be a light to the nations and to allow other people to come in. In that passage, it talks about eunuchs who will be blessed and they will have an inheritance that's, that's better than sons and daughters. These are people that are banished from the, from the temple. To be a light to the nations, is my house not to be a house of prayer for all nations and for all people? The other text comes from Jeremiah 7 where it talks about uh, you've made this, my house, into a den of of robbers, we'll talk about this in a bit too, it's not just people that are corrupt and stealing, it's people who are um, revolutionaries, insurrectionists, people that have political 
and national agendas. And they have transformed what is supposed to be a place of worship and sacrifice, a place that is supposed to be a light to the nations, and they've turned it into something that's exclusive. They've turned it into something that's just about them and their power and their prospects for the future. In, I, in Jeremiah 7, in the rest of that context as well, it, it talks about people not being lulled to sleep by saying the temple is a place of safety, the temple is a place of safety, the temple is a place of safety, because you cannot go out and be a person who is not just. You can't be a person who rips off your brother, your sister, or your fellow worshiper, and then come into the temple and think everything's gonna be hunky-dory. And what Jesus is doing, he's taking these two passages and instructing people in what's going on in this particular context. So if someone does ask you, what would Jesus do? You have to realize that within the realm of possibility is turning tables over and breaking out whips. Note, the whips come in the book of John. Uh, but here, uh, Sarah really wanted me to work that meme in there, and I did my best, and, and that's what it is. But a lot of times we do, we do see this, this story as something that sets Jesus apart, and maybe we've looked at it with, with an odd glance. But there's a little bit more to it than just Jesus being ticked. Remember in the book of Mark, he looks around, he goes home, he comes back. He knows exactly what he is doing, and it is calculated. This is a symbolic act, or it's a demonstration. Now, this is something that prophets do. It's called a sign act, or um, a symbolic act, or a symbolic parable that's kind of being acted out. I wanna read you a couple of these stories from the, the prophets so that you can get an idea as to what's going on in some of these texts that are very strange. This is Isaiah chapter 20. In the year that Assyria's king Sargon sent his general to Ashdod, he fought against Ashdod and captured it. At that time, the Lord had spoken through Isaiah, Amos' son, go, take off your mourning clothes from your waist and remove the shoes from your feet. And Isaiah did this, walking naked and barefoot. The Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years, My man Isaiah, like we, we don't oftentimes get into the nitty gritty of the prophetic. I think sometimes we think that it's all future telling, but what these guys were doing is they were acting out certain things. He goes on to say, just as Isaiah has walked around naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and an omen against Egypt and Cush, so will the king of Assyria lead captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, both young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks bared, humiliating Egypt. Good night, son. Sleep tight. You don't, you don't usually dip into Isaiah 20 and the naked prophet for three years uh, when you're tucking your kids. I mean, I might, but I'm just weird like that. The text from, from Jeremiah is a bit more tame. The Lord proclaims to Jeremiah, go buy a clay jar from a potter in the presence of the elders of the people and the priests. And then God tells him some stuff, like here's some things that you need to do. And then later in the story, it says, then you should shatter the clay jar in the sight of the people who are with you, and you should say to them, this is what the Lord of heavenly forces says, just as one who smashes the potter's pieces beyond repair, so I will smash this people and this city. So Jeremiah is performing a sign act or a parable or something that's beyond words where he's actually giving a picture 
of what God was up to in this particular passage. This one's probably my favorite. This is from Ezekiel, just random passages from Ezekiel, and I've dubbed it very accurately some weird stuff in the book of Ezekiel. I'll just give you the Cliff Notes version. We've talked about this before. Basically, uh, God wanted Ezekiel to bake some food. He's, he's built a little mini replica of Jerusalem, because that's what you do. He's, he's, he's put like a siege engine and a siege ramp, because that's how people destroyed cities back in the day. And he's like built this little model, and then he's supposed to lay on his side for 390 days, representing how long Israel has been terrible, whatever. So at some point, he's supposed to make himself some food. Okay, so it says, at fixed times, you will eat your food by weight, 14 ounces a day. You will also ration your water by measure, drinking a sixth of hen, whatever. Uh, Eat it like barley bread and bake it on human excrement while the people watch you. (laughs) Ezekiel says what you would say, which is, no thanks. Ah, Lord God, I've never been unclean from my childhood until now. I've never eaten anything that wasn't properly slaughtered, and no unclean meat has ever entered my mouth. So God says, then I'll let you use cow dung instead. <laughs> Period. We're moving on. There's no, like, there's no more debate. So Ezekiel's like, okay, well, I guess so. I'm just going to lay on my side and eat some poop bread. Later, he's like talking about cutting his hair with some razors and divvying it up into thirds and then throwing it to the wind and putting some in his pants. There's just weird, there's weird, that's real. There's weird stuff that's happening in in the prophets and it's just, it's an acted out parable of what God is wanting to accomplish. Um, And Jesus is also doing that as he walks into the temple and he starts overthrowing tables. What does it mean? What does it symbolize? What is Jesus trying to communicate to the people, much like a prophet would have been communicating? What most scholars would say is this is a symbol of judgment and destruction. Jesus is not trying to overthrow all of the money changing. He's not trying to stop the sacrificial system because that would be nearly impossible. He's one guy. You can see in these stories, nobody's coming to his defense. Peter's not going around throwing over tables too. It's just Jesus going crazy in the, in the temple. And it's a sign to say judgment is coming and destruction is coming and the temple that is supposed to be a light to the nations and a source of hope and peace and goodness has been corrupted and it's been turned into a system where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. R.T. France says, Mark tells the story in such a way as to suggest that Jesus's protest was not against the trade in itself. It's not just the money changing that's happening that Jesus is so ticked about, nor against any of the supposed exploitation by the traders, but rather it's against the fact that it's happening in the wrong place. Here's an a model of what the temple probably looked like. There's three important sections of this temple. Okay, let's see if my laser pointer works. Nice. This big spot right here, actually, if you back it up, this is like the portico where people would come in and you could have some money changing that happens here, but you also have money changing that takes place right here in the court of the Gentiles. This is the farthest place in that non-Jewish worshipers could get. And now their worship place, their place of prayer, has been invaded by people that are selling animals, perhaps making a profit as well, but they've kind of invaded on their territory. We also have the court of the women here, and then we have the court of the Israelites here leading into the holy place and the um, 
the most holy place as well. This, this temple is massive. You can see this is another just a, a model of what it would look like. So this is where the bad stuff's happening here. The, the money changing in the court of the Gentiles was just outside of uh, the Holy of Holies and the holy place. So this is, this is taking place in a place that is occupied for prayer and worship of people that have pilgrimaged to this place. And this makes Jesus a bit angry. He goes in saying, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And we've already talked about this. This is Mark's unique inclusion in this story that there's something to be said for the Gentiles and he writes, as the temple has been intended to symbolize God's dwelling with Israel for the sake of the world, the way Jesus' contemporaries had organized things, it had come to symbolize not God's welcome to the nations, but God's exclusion of them. If there's one buzzword that I've been saying for weeks and weeks as we've been looking at Mark, inclusion. Jesus finding the people on the outskirts and the margins and bringing them in, the people that the religious leaders would have cast off to the side, they become Jesus' friends. They become Jesus' ministry partners. Last week when we were thinking about the resurrection, it's not entrusted to the holiest of people with the nice robes and the cool hats. It's women at the tomb who first hear that Jesus is risen. In the first century, that's not what happens because as we talked about, a, a woman's testimony was completely worthless in the courts at that time, but Jesus keeps bringing in these people and here it seems as though he's going to bat for the Gentiles who have been excluded from temple worship and it does not sit well with him and we should not even bat an eye at that because we've seen this throughout the entire book. What's happening in this, Jesus is producing a symbolic demonstration against the exclusionary practices of the Jewish people. Beyond that, and maybe a, even a, a bigger and broader theme, is this nationalistic violence. The people in the temple wanted to destroy Rome. They wanted them to be done. They wanted to assert themselves as God's people. They wanted to have freedom and hope and life, but they didn't necessarily want to include anyone else in that program. And as this is happening, again, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So what happens is the people on the top are abusing their power and they're being unjust to their fellow Israelites. They're ripping them off as they come in to get uh, sacrifices. They're, they're ripping them off with the temple taxes. They're, they're, in a sense, not going to bat for them. And we hear the echoes of Jeremiah saying, you cannot come into the temple. You cannot come into a house of prayer if you have blood on your hands, you cannot just think that it's gonna be okay for you to live however you wanna live and then show up and think that God is cool with that. We see here in this story, in order to understand what's happening in the temple, it's surrounded by the story of the fig tree where Jesus shows up, sees what's going on, the tree having leaves but not producing anything, cursing it, destroying it, and it withers up and dies. It's a sign of judgment. It's a sign of destruction that is bound to happen. And we see this throughout Jesus' ministry, specifically where he's talking about the temple. This is later on in Mark chapter 13. That whole chapter is sort of about this. But the beginning couple of verses, uh, some of his disciples are coming to him. They say, look, teacher, what massive stones. Look at these buildings. They're huge. It's 172,000 square feet. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. But Jesus comes back and says, do you see all these great buildings? 
Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. The temple, friends, this is what Jesus is saying, is about to get theirs. The temple is about to be judged for its inappropriate practices. Not just the making money on, on sacrifice, but the injustice that happens, the complete disregard for the poor. These folks were living in a perpetual cycle of power, status, plans for the future that may not have included God. All of this, and this is where I'm kind of stumbling, I'll just be honest with that. Who needs to be warned today? Are there practices within the church that you see where we are the rich getting richer and keeping the poor poorer? I had a conversation with someone the other day where um, they were basically saying to me that it seems like within the American church, we just want to grow spiritually and we just want to receive a blessing and we just want to read our devotionals in the morning and just kind of grow in our own wisdom and knowledge. But if you hear Jesus throughout the New Testament, feed the poor. Clothe the people that cannot afford clothes. Open up your homes and invite them in. The people that have been cast off in society that are out on the margins and the outskirts, go get them and bring them in. I just wanna, I just wanna read my devotional and just grow and just, you know, just, just wanna feel blessed today. I don't really want to have to do anything. Who needs to be warned today? I think that this is much bigger than just the, the American church. I think this is maybe inclusive of, of our political structures and other sorts of things where it seems as though what Jesus is going after here, um, a lot of people could be at fault which makes me want to consider this, and even though most of us in this room don't have too much status and too much power and too much whatever, when we think about who needs to be warned, are we so different from them? How when we look back at this first century practice of people just going to the temple and it's just kind of routine as what they do, and how have we succumbed into the routines where we've been convinced that it's just okay to throw on our worship music and raise our hands in the car, but when we see somebody who needs help, keep on rolling. Who needs to be warned today? I think the, the most difficult part of this passage for me is the end, where Jesus launches into this little teaching on prayer. Um, it's, it's weird how it's, it's appended to this um, story about the fig tree and the cursing and the temple cleansing, but I just want to focus in on, on one verse because as we sit here and we think about, yeah, those people have a problem. Yeah, those people need to get their act together. Yeah, those people aren't holy like I'm holy or like we're holy or whatever. These words from Jesus just sort of cut. He says, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. Jesus rolling into the temple, throwing over tables, saying, you've turned this house into a den of robbers. You've turned this place, and you have not respected the 
other people that are coming here, you have not allowed this to be a house of prayer for all nations. But we need to forgive. Jesus throwing down the gauntlet and having these emotions that are rare for us to see and his instruction to people is, when you pray, if you have anything against anybody, bury it. Forgive them so that, big two words there, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Let's go back to our example. We've got our worship CD on and we're jamming and it's great. We're reading our, our devotional for the morning and it's just good as a daily bread. It has really spoken to my life today about what I'm going to be doing. But I hate this person because they don't get it. And I can't get past that. But it's cool, right, Jesus? We're good. And we go back to Jeremiah 7 where it's like you can't just come back into this house saying it's good. We've got work to do. Now, as we're sitting here, it got heavy. I apologize, but sit in it for a second. Are we so different from these people that Jesus is super ticked at? Because every time in the Gospels when he's throwing a fit, it's at religious folks that are nice and clean and proper and they know all of their Bible verses. Maybe they even have a seminary degree. And if we get beyond that, who do we need to forgive? Collectively, individually. Who has hurt you? Is it a church? Is it an authority figure? Is it a parent? Is it a teacher? Is it a friend? Somebody stabbed you in the back and you can't get past it, but you'll listen to that worship CD. What are the steps that we're taking to live out what Jesus is saying? Bury it. Forgive them so that your Father, who is in heaven, can also forgive you your sins. Friends, this is a weighty text where we see Jesus in raw emotion. And he's laying down a gauntlet and we can't just look at a meme and say, let's do what he did because there might be the case that he wants to throw over some of our tables and he wants to stop us from going through the temple and he wants to beg us to say, forgive and move on. That does not mean you keep putting yourself in harm's way, but it does mean you learn what it looks like to be gracious and to allow people to receive forgiveness in the same way that when we bring all of our junk and our baggage, God says, you know what? You're good. I love you. What would it look like for us to be a people that begin to walk that out where we forgive and we love and we accept and we're inclusive we fight for those on the margins and we stick our necks out for people that nobody else is going to advocate for. What would it look like if we in some real way partnered with Jesus to overturn some tables first in our own lives but then to overturn some tables in the society around us to bring people in, to give them a chance and then to forgive the ones that are prohibiting them from having that chance. What would it look like? What would it look like?